It is officially the one year anniversary of cannabis legalization. What a fundamental change this was. Cannabis filed generally, but it's been a tremendous success. It was a big political risk because you've essentially given birth to the industry in a lot of ways. Patients medically interested or in need of cannabis. We've always known the cannabis industry is a global uh, industry, but what's next, I think, is the big question. The small mom and pops can never survive in that environment, and we're already starting to see evidence of that. How big will the cannabis industry be? Welcome to 2020 Live on the 2020 Network, presented by Interact. I'm Alex Patterson. Just last week, Canada 2020, in partnership with Genome Canada, hosted Canadian Grown, the 2020 Cannabis Public Policy Conference in Toronto. We wanted to mark the one-year anniversary of cannabis legalization by providing a space where people in the industry could take an in-depth look at the policy, scientific, and business forces shaping Canada's cannabis industry. So myself, along with Jay Rosenthal from The Business of Cannabis, sat down with some of the leaders in the industry to discuss cannabis policy, market structure, science and research, global pressures, and what exactly year two of legalization will look like. Here's some of those conversations. Anne McClellan, welcome. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. And you just came off stage uh, with an interview with Mark Rendell of the Globe and Mail. I, I want to talk a bit about all of that uh, because you've seen firsthand the sort of before, during, and now reflecting on the, the past year. I don't want to ask you to give a grade, but how do you think it's going to date? I actually think it's going quite well. Um, people need to take on board what a fundamental change this was. Um, you have a, a previously criminalized product that you are moving into a legal regulated market. The only other time we have seen this happen is with alcohol, and there's no one around us today who was alive then when that transformation happened. So. We need, I think, to have some perspective on um, the nature of the transformation, how long this will take. Um, but uh, I, I would say overall that I think this first year has played out pretty much the way most people would have expected, at least those people who had reasonable expectations and understood what a big transformation this was. One of the persistent things that always comes up when I'm talking to people that are either working for an LP or in the private sector, they're constantly beating the, the drum of, of marketing. And then, you know, the other side of my brain, you're talking to public servants, public officials, um, the conversations that they want to have are about safety and about, yep. uh, about the black market and, and, and health and health. And I, I'm, I'm wondering if this past year, and you mentioned that it's, it's hard to get things right in 364 days, yes. you know, right. is where That's we are right. today. Um, it, it feels like there we've been kind of talking past one another, and I'm just wondering your perspective on, like, are we having the right conversations? Are we having the right kind of conversation in this space right now about how public policy matters to this sector and to this market? It's an interesting question. Although maybe I am scarred by my experience as Federal Minister of Health dealing with, as I affectionately call them, big alcohol, big pharma, and big tobacco. And I remember the discussions with big alcohol around why they shouldn't have to put a warning label on their product in relation to drinking and pregnancy, right? Um, 
they will push, and I get it, that's their job, they will push as hard as they can um, to be able to sell as much product, glamorize it to the greatest extent possible, distinguish their product from others. I get all that. But my concern any government's concern has to be around health and safety of one's citizens because all you need is one death or one uh, uh, tainted product that is widely distributed with people in large numbers showing up in, an, in emergency rooms and all of a sudden the public says you change your regulations you make it tougher for these unscrupulous business people to sell their product. We want tighter safety concern, health restrictions and, and issues around safety and more warning labels. Um, and uh, it's a balance, you're right, it's a balance, but the balance for government always has to be on the uh, health and safety side. And you know, it's very clear. And I said this morning, look guys, if you play by the rules, um, then down the road, five years, whatever it is, when we have learnings in this space, maybe in fact the rules can be changed so it looks a little bit more like alcohol advertising and a little less like tobacco. I'm not counting on that happening because I think if you look at what's happening with the vaping issue right now, um, a lot of societal concern out there. Now, my colleague Mark Ware was quite right to point out that what we see in the U.S. seems to be tainted or contaminated product that's being used for vaping, and that's why there have been so many incidents of people showing up in emergency But groups. the multiplying effect of right. just those individual yeah. case studies. Yeah, exactly. Tremendous impact. Yeah. yeah, and all of a sudden, you've got people going to uh, Health Canada and saying, maybe, maybe this sh ban vaping, right? Now, that's an irrational response, at least at this point. But if you're government, you have to take this on board. And you have to say, okay, what might this look like? What are the things we know that we can use to protect public health and public safety? So, yeah, it's a constant push and shove. Uh, and I, I'm, I understand where industry, industry comes from, but... Uh, in the names of health and safety, they too need to be a lot more understanding of the pressures on government and the fact our priority is not selling their product. Um, and, uh, you, but I do think out of the box it's wise to have strict uh, uh, controls in around, uh, around marketing and sponsorship and those kinds of things. Right now, people need to be educated. That's why the warning labels and the content labels are as big as they are and the company's name is as small as it is because people need to understand that this product is not without risk and people need to know what they're taking. And they need to know how much they should take and how long they need to wait before they take some more. And all of that should be on a warning label somewhere. And uh, so consequently, we don't have pretty pictures on our packages. Uh, might we sometime in the future? Maybe, but not now. And there's good public policy reason for that not to happen. So I would tell industry, stop fetching about that. And, you know, do, do the right thing 
and get yourselves established and prove to the public and governments at all levels that you are ethical uh, business people who also put public health and safety first and foremost. Is that your stern warning to industry yes. figure two? That's right. That's my stern warning to industry again, yes. Chuck Rafici, welcome. Great to be here. So we're here at the Canada 2020 uh, Policy Conference, and I was reminded as we sat down that almost two years ago to the day, we sat down for an interview with you in late 2017, and you were giving sort of your view, the landscape of what was happening in cannabis. Um, and how do you think sort of two years hence things have rolled out from your perspective? Yeah, well, I think I give uh, uh, regulators, the government, kind of a, an A for effort and probably a, you know, a, B, a B plus for execution. I mean, it's, uh, we're just a year in. Uh, I think it's been, you know, looking back two years ago to where we are now, uh, I think most people will be very happy. Um, of course, it's never good enough when you're in industry and, you know, so many different stakeholders, uh, we've got to keep moving forward. But I think it's great. I mean, we've, we've legalized first G7 country. We have products and stores. And we're just about to see uh, the kind of full range of products with phase two and edibles and fused products hitting the markets later this year. So that's really exciting. You know, and we see um, other countries now an acceleration of, of uh, you know, legalization initiatives. Mexico, I just read this morning, it uh, looks like there might be a bill in the next couple of days. And so what what I really look forward to, you know, from on a global stage is the domino effect of legalization. And we already see many medical markets. Uh, you know, the UK uh, just got granted a license for importing products. But once you have two countries or three, you know, we have two countries now, once you have three or four countries, in two or three years, you could have 20, 30 countries that have are fully legalized. And then that starts to really be a, a very robust global market. And that's going to eventually, I think, um, put an end to you know the difficulties around trading cannabis molecules for recreational purposes across borders. Uh, and so I think that's, for me, that's the long game of when we have can truly you know, manufacture a product somewhere in the world uh, and ship a recreational cannabis product anywhere else in the world, um, then, you know, then we're truly a mature industry. And so that's, that's the next kind of five to seven year arc. Chuck, it's interesting because when I think of what Canada has done, particularly over the past year, I put it through the lens of something that gets said a lot in political circles and in policy circles, which is that Canada really wants a seat at the table on most things, whether it's defense policy or trade agreements or just Canada wants a seat at the table. And what strikes me really about this space is that it's not so much that Canada has a seat at the table, but the table is in Canada right now. And I'm I'm interested, Is does it still feel like that a year into uh, a, a legalized recreation market? It does. The uh, you know, the U.S. looms large. We see a lot of uh, multi-state operators in the U.S. Uh, raising large amounts of capital, uh, you know, and really a, a lot of more U.S. states that have, uh, you know, legalization initiatives. And so I think the biggest change for, I guess, the risk of the table leaving Canada uh, is that we now know the U.S. will legalize. A few years back, people would say maybe it's still a generation away, but at this point, the trains left the station. It's just a matter of time. And so that creates an urgency, and I think that's the timeline for for our industry and for Canada to maintain that that dominance. But today, you know, we are we are exporting our, our IP, our knowledge. Uh, you know, German tenders. Uh, you know, you need federal legal uh, manufacturing distribution experience, and so we see Canadian companies being favored in other jurisdictions. Uh, and at the same time, Toronto is really still the the cannabis uh, capital for fundraising, and so all the companies are coming through here, and that that really helps strengthen and maintain the momentum of our ecosystem in Canada. But between the U.S. and we see London and family offices in 
in the UK and in Europe starting to look at European opportunities and other European countries accelerating. I think it's, um, it's actually going to be interesting to see where the biggest challenge comes from, whether it's the US or whether it's from Europe writ large uh, to Canada's, uh, you know, to Canada owning that table. We are, as it stands right now, we're, we're five days away from the, the federal election, and I'm, I'm not going to ask to do any sort of crystal ball looking, but Chuck, you're, you're a, a former or recovering political staffer, which usually means that you're not quite recovering and never, it's never fully out of your system. But what's interesting to me, uh, the political economy of cannabis in Canada right now is, is, is really interesting because a year ago, the Trudeau government did something really great for the country. They, they you know, enabled you know, this market to, to grow and thrive. Entrepreneurs have, such as yourself have made it what it is, but, you know, public policy and some political leadership enabled the current system that, that we have to, to, to flourish and hopefully grow further. Um, I'm curious as to why a year later no one's really taking credit for it. That's actually my, my, my one pet peeve with, with the uh, government. Obviously, as a card-carrying liberal, um, you know, never looking to, uh, to, to throw, throw dirt, but I think we haven't been proud enough of the achievement. Maybe it's just too easy of a, a lightning rod political attack for, uh, you know, for conservatives or, or, or people that don't, don't like the cannabis file generally, but it's been a tremendous success. It was a big political risk. Uh, it was hard. Uh, and both, you know, federal as well as municipal and, and provincial regulators had to move very fast to implement this, you know, hand-in-hand. And, uh, you know, do our do our government structure, and so I think it's been, you know, again, an A an A for effort because um, there was a lot of effort in a very short period of time. It's interesting because uh, Nick Nanos is speaking tomorrow at this conference, and and we did some research with him where we were trying to get right at that point, and it was about you may disagree with the policy of legalization or cannabis overall, and some and many people do, or some people do, but the idea that there are jobs behind this and that there's economic driver of this is widely popular, right? It's widely popular across the board, all demographics, all parties. And it, and it really is interesting, to your point, Alex, that it, that it hasn't been sort of hugged as something that we ought to be proud of. I think that's probably year two, not year one. And the fact that year one is coming to an end on the cusp of an election is probably why. But I do think there's something coming up that it'll be like, you, you don't need to love this policy. You don't need to love legalization. But you can't say that 30 to 50,000 jobs and all that means for small towns, big towns, the financial markets is is net good. Yeah, it's net good. And I think there's certainly, for people that were, were most opposed to cannabis legalization, I think they can see now that the world hasn't ended. You know, there, there people are not uh, you know falling off their chairs walking down the street, um, and so it's it's kind of normal. I mean, Canadians were always massive consumers of pot, and that hasn't changed. They're just not they're not being thrown in jail for it, and and maybe ten percent of them today are able to, are buying it from a legal source, and that number will continue to increase. And so yeah. that that's a huge win from both you know public health policy uh, to just kind of uh, you know almost like civil rights. You know, yeah. why, you know it's just it makes no sense that it was it was illegal. I think, and uh, I think we're you know we're kind of leading the world in that, and something that we can be proud of. So what are a couple of the things that we really need to get right um, in order for us to deliver on the promise of what this sector could be to, to Canada. Yeah, I think I think two things in the short term is, you know, uh, making sure that we have uh, as wide and kind of a varied selection of products available uh, in, to, to, for the consumers. Otherwise, consumers are going to continue voting with their feet and, and accessing the black market. So making sure that we have, you know, just just the whole range of gamut of used products. But more long term, I think the battle is going to be on on advertising rules. Uh, we started with a very cautious approach, which I think was which was reasonable, uh, and we uh, you know we regulate cannabis much like tobacco. Uh, but at the same time, we have you know alcohol advertising, which is 
very permissive. And I think alcohol and cannabis advertising rules have to meet. Where they meet is an open question. And the reason that's important is that uh, as the U.S. moves towards legalization, we're going to have brands that are, don't have those rules. And so, again, when other people in the world build an affinity to certain brands uh, and kind of from pop culture, they're, they're not going to know, under the current rules in Canada, they will not know Canadian brands. It'll be U.S. brands and other countries' brands with later rules that will become known. And, you know, in the very long term, the value of, of companies will be in that brand value. And so we're, we're kind of operating in the long term with one hand kind of behind our, our backs. But I think that's that's appropriate as long as that kind of eases over time. And, and I think just like when you walk into a dispensary in Colorado uh, for first-time users, says go low and go slow. I think with our regulations, we're also taking the same approach. But we have to make sure that we kind of up the dose uh, uh, over time on, on, on how we can advertise and promote this product, which I think for most people will realize, like myself, that uh, on, on many fronts, you know, alcohol and our task force, even Al McClendon's, you know, the task force reported that alcohol from public health perspective is probably, you know, is, is probably a higher risk than, than cannabis for, for many factors. And so we have to start treating it, I think, evenly. Matthew Nordgren is here with us. Um, it is officially the one-year anniversary of cannabis legalization in Canada. But you know, you're an American. You're coming. You're joining us from the states. What's your perspective on on Canada's cannabis industry? You know, a year into the market. You know, I was at. I was speaking at a conference not long ago here, and one of your um, uh, senior politicians, I think, put it best. And this is how I feel about Canadians. She said, "In the world stage." Canada will never pick a fight, but we will also never back down. And I thought that really, to me, encapsulated the feeling I've had here. It's the it's it's an environment where the people are extremely friendly and welcoming and open, um, but at the same time, you're not going to back down, and you stand strong and you do deals and you care about things and you have values. Um, and so, you know, I love Canadians and love Canada. My best friend growing up was Canadian, and then ended up having some people throughout my adult life that came into my life that were Canadian. So, outside the personal thoughts, I think, you know, from a business standpoint, um, if you're in the cannabis space. I hope you love what Canada's done because you've essentially given birth to the industry in a lot of ways. Um, in, a, in a time when plant-touching assets had no real way to reach scale and get the capital they needed to grow, you enabled that. Um, so without that, I don't think any of us would be where we are, and I hope everybody appreciates it. A lot of this conference has been about the public policy and regulatory framework that has enabled and built this this market in Canada. And touching on what we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation, what, if anything, as you look at other countries start to come online, as the U.S. thinks about how, you know, post-2020 election uh, that a, a federally legal market would, would get installed, what, if anything, would you pull from or have learned from the Canadian framework and our, our policy frameworks like what would you extract because I, I think our policymakers are very proud of the way in which they set things up the sky didn't fall right when you know on the first day of legalization so what is it that you would basically you know import from Canada that's a great question um, I, you know I hope that the collaborative mentality um, is, is something that continues because um, I was able to watch a lot of people work together to get this where it is, both from the policy side, the business side, um, and the service side, bankers, lawyers, um, markets. And, um, you yeah, that's one of the reasons I fell in love with this country and the people is just watching how closely they all work. 
Um, in, in the U.S., I think that we have a lot of people that are fighting for their piece of the pie. Um, and what they don't realize, I don't know if there's any Game of Thrones fans out there, but, you know, it reminds me of like the last episode or last season where, uh, you know, there's a greater force that we have to be concerned with. And individual, as an individual, you're not going to be able to stand tall. You're going to get you're going to get broken down. But together, you know, we can defeat the White Walkers. Right. I mean, it's like you can't not all come together for this greater potential risk you're really speaking my language here this is a great <laughs> okay. way no no this is good this is, this is, uh, yeah this you is a good I mean? frame for me yes you you, you, <laughs> you have to realize is that there are large large players figuring out how to get into this space and they have not been here for this journey they haven't built this thing they don't have all the battle scars that people have for two years or 40 years however long people have been in this there's a culture here and I hope that we can take um, some lessons from Canada, at least, and the fact that everybody here worked so hard together to get where it was, that if the U.S. can do that and we can come together and collaborate, we can build these companies to be very strong. Everybody can do really well if we do it together as the institutionals move in. Same thing in other countries. People need to be united by cannabis. And hemp. I think the way Canadians live their life is emblematic of this, this industry and how it's grown. And I hope that going forward, everybody in every market feels the same passion about the human element that is cannabis and brings people together and they collaborate. And we're here with Bruce Linton, a guy that knows a thing or two about the cannabis space. We are officially on the one year anniversary of legalization in Canada. Um, uh, happy anniversary, I think, is the right way to start this interview. It's certainly been a busy year. Yeah, I should say so. <laughs> Not much has changed. <laughs> well, but let's dig into that a little bit. What hasn't changed? I think what hasn't really changed, much to my surprise, has been America. Okay. Um, like Europe's changing, Canada's changing, the frequency of the stores, the types of products, things, um, you know, ironing out problems that were reasonable to anticipate getting fixed. But I find... Um, I don't know, but I bet the value of most of the U.S. companies a year ago and today is about the same. Um, the states moving forward move backwards. Places like New York State almost go with it and then say maybe later. Um, so I've been a bit surprised by the static nature of America because you do think of it as typically a more progressive business environment than other places. In one of the one of the axes that that we put this conference on. I think is boring a lot of the industry uh, or borrowing a lot of the industry parlance, which is like we have a first mover advantage. What does that what does that mean to you as literally one of the first movers in the space? So um, I always push people to say um, your goal has to be best mover. Right. Uh, first mover. Okay, best mover means that you're adding IQ, you're adding sort of scope of vision, and. Um, so I think we're sort of still best mover potentially. First mover seems a bit historic. Um, but like uh, Israel, during the course of this year, amended their perspective on this. And immediately thereafter, you saw their bureaucratic uh, diplomatic corps reaching into governments to say, you should come to Israel to learn how to do it. You're Thailand. You're Malaysia. Clunk, clunk, clunk. In Canada, we didn't go there. Occasionally, if they asked, we could have them. So I would say, like, that's the difference between first and best mover. 
And so Canada's probably got a bit of catch-up now to do on how do we make sure that the uh, implementation experience of what we have is understood by more than PowerPoint or a newspaper. And that's where you have to take the ministers of health from all these jurisdictions and the bureaucrats in charge of it and bring them over. And so we're not doing that as actively as other places. And not surprisingly, Israel said, small country export idea. You're wearing a t-shirt right now, just for our listeners. It's, uh, what does this say? It says, it says, this town is dope. And that's in reference and to Smith, Smith Falls. Falls. And the one they had before, it said, this town's on a roll. And this is a town that's... Uh, there may have been somebody who wasn't a conservative once elected there, but it never happens. So this is a very conservative town and has a chamber of commerce, which has a t-shirt that says this town is dope and they sell out constantly. That anecdotally and in and of itself, I think, is if, if we forgot for a second that this entire sector was built on, on a leaf and a previously illicit substance, it strikes me this is exactly the kind of industry when you look at the the entrepreneurs that it, it has attracted and the research potential and the investment that there would be a minister standing in front of a plant every other week uh, and uh, i'm curious as to why you think that has not been the case i i'm i'm perplexed like at minimum you'd think the green party would want to have a whole bunch of images of here's where we stand on this topic and then move up the ranks because i don't think there's any Right now in this election, I've heard zero, uh, we should stop this discussion. There's not one party opposed to it. Yet there doesn't appear to be one party in favor of it. It is just a thing now, and it has been a terrific thing for the country. Like, um, I mentioned foreign direct investment. If you said, what, what is attracting dollars to our country, then once those dollars are here, they don't leave. They build things. It's this. Uh, it's not pipelines, it's not cutting trees down, it's not digging holes, yet none of the politicians pick up on that. So um, I think you might start to find that um, a provincial election, if some province starts to have fewer of the shops, some leave and move to other provinces, it might become a topic. First session that we had at this conference yesterday, and the first interview that, that Jay and I did was with Anne McClellan. They were reflecting on the approach that the task force took, the the, the gospel of low and slow, and that um, that real resistance to, like, let's not be like big tech where we're going to move fast and we're going to break a bunch of stuff. There is a public trust. Anne McClellan's recommendations was that the just play by the rules, follow the regulations, and the rest will follow. How does that feel and how does that sit with you a, a year later? I had the uh, chance to meet with a good chunk of uh, that panel at one of our facilities. So uh, she wasn't there, and, but a um, police officer from Newfoundland was there. Uh, somebody from uh, uh, an addiction facility, Dr. Ware, a bunch of these people. And um, my only question and concern was, I agree with that approach as long as you don't leave it in first gear for five years. So, right, first gear has to go before second gear. Um, so first year, first gear, second year, second gear. I think you're going to see at least a third gear needed to continue to com compete with the illicit market by the third year. Um, and the third gear might be a combination of products and presentation of products. Uh, it might be combinations of strengths of products. It might be, you know, there's going to be stuff that the illicit market makes that we have to decide, do we want to, you know, seed that to them or do you want to actually create it and have it safe? Um, but I felt pretty good about it. Um, I was very surprised the uh, police officer from uh, Newfoundland 
Like if you're sitting around a marijuana factory with a whole bunch of people who are celebrities and nobody tells you exactly their name, within about four seconds you can guess who's the cop. Um, and uh, she was like pretty hard, pretty serious. But by the end, I liked her because if somebody's a super cheerleader right away, they're often flaky. And so what we did is uh, presented all the fact-based information entirely, I think, one over her perspective and trust on how we approached it in that facility. Um, and then by the end, she was the one, I think, most actively advocating probably that why not at least also introduce some form of edibles or gummies or something because that's such a profit-driven area for the illicit market. And so it was interesting to not, not just try to represent the sector, to watch the journey those people were on. Ruth, thanks for being here. Over a year ago, I read something you had done uh, with, uh, within the University of Toronto talking about really what we don't know. Um, do we know any more now uh, the impacts and effects of cannabis on the body and on humans than we did then? Um, well, in terms of research, the kind of research that I do, one year is quite a short period of time, really. Um, so in terms of some of the things we don't know, we're looking at clinical trials which as you probably know take a long time and lots of money and uh, takes a long time to recruit the right patients to identify um, funding sources and so on so if you're if you're talking about a really robust clinical trial to get what we call very strong evidence of safety and efficacy in toxicity studies then uh, we're not necessarily a whole lot further forward but data is emerging from different clinical trials that people are conducting around the world on um, medical cannabis and CBD specifically as well so um, so we're a little further forward but it does take time yeah. And is there anything specific that you'd like to see, either in research that's being done or if you could aspirationally say, we would like to do, you know, see research that says this, or not says this, but would, would, would test this? Well, as someone who's been work, working on cannabinoid research for a really long yeah. time, that's a big, there's lots of things I'd love to see because yeah. I'm one of those geeky cannabinoid scientists who wants to do all the research. Right. Um, in terms of um, questions that people who are either patients, medically interested or in need of cannabis, kind of um, there's an imperative that we try and give them good answers to those questions and and that means taking the what were the claims we're making from the realm of anecdote into the realm of really getting evidence up and uh, and all that includes safety as well so not so you know I'm a pharmacology professor we always talk about medicines having both risks and benefits and often you look at the risks and benefits in terms of what medical condition that person has whether it's something more serious or there was an unmet medical need then you're potentially willing to live with you know a higher degree of side effects so all those things need to be taken into account um, so I think that from a patient you know, I, you know I, lots of people speak to me you know email me with their concerns and I try and answer as many emails as I can and some of those are in the realm of people who think cannabis might work for them, but they're not sure because there isn't really any... We don't have an awful lot of good, solid clinical data. Um, lots of claims are being made, particular in CBD, but again, we need that... We need data for efficacy, and we also need data for safety because CBD is not necessarily a benign substance, especially at the kind of high doses that people might be exposed to. So... From a patient perspective, that would be 
a really important research question. The other group of people who email me a lot are people who feel as though they might have been, uh, might cannabis might have had a detrimental effect for them, and they email, email me saying, "Is it only me? Is there any science behind this? Am I the only person who's had some kind of, um, you know, weird psychotic episode with cannabis?" Um, or you know, I'm I'm struggling with a cannabis use disorder. Is this a real thing? You know, and so that's another group of people. There may be specific people with some kind of vulnerabilities, or it may be around dose or age, the age at which people start using, which may be even vulnerabilities, even still in the under 25. So those are from a public health, if we want to keep public health at the heart of all of this, that's another group of people who, who often engage with me. So I'd like to see that research done so we can give some very good information to people. A lot of the conversations that we're having here at the Canadian Grown Conference is that Public education is is some people assume that the public knows a lot more about this than we think they do, and I think we're finding out that that may not be the case. And in, 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 and so, what are some bottlenecks and barriers that you think need to be eased up around public education that might help um, ease tension? I don't, I don't know what the word is yeah, necessarily, yeah. but help with that gap. Well, I think that in some ways, tension is a is a there are tensions between different scenarios here because we have got you know a history of people's perceptions of cannabis and we've heard some of that today about um, you know criminalization and marginalization and uh, inequities and so on and kind of demonizing cannabis so there's these perceptions and and so there, there's kind of education around that and understanding those issues but then and then there's the, the the potential the health effects in terms of really understanding there are potential medical benefits but then really understand that any medicine comes with side effects and there are and those can come in the form of harms for non-medical use as well so i think we need a lot more clarity and i think one of the things we need is just to be quite bold and brave in in bringing that clarity to the conversation um because I mean, Mark, we were mentioned a little bit this morning about labeling of products. Now, in order to label a product with potential, um, as we do with different, with, for example, with tobacco and alcohol, you need to then be very clear and open about we are dealing, we're in a realm of something that can potentially cause some harms to, to maybe a small number of people, maybe not. Um, but we need to be able to navigate that in a very clear way. And I think the 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 issue with education is that it needs to, there needs to be clarity. There needs to be a real clear messaging around what's medical, what does mm -hmm. that mean? Yeah. What does non-medical mean? And what does, you know, then there's this whole thing of health, natural health products, which is a, a very tricky area to pin down. And then if you were thinking about, well, wellness, if, I mean, I'm a pharmacologist. We, we boil all these things down to the, the data. You know, wellness products can make you well. Some well, inverted commas, wellness products have made people unwell. We just need to know. And it, the other issue with education is we need to be clear about some of the things we don't know yet. So let's not try and tell people that we know things that we don't. You're part of the Faculty of Medicine at University of Toronto. How do we inform the next wave of doctors and phys you know, physicians to say this is something you're going to hear, even as basic as you're going to hear about it from your patients. Here's how to 
think about it, talk about it, learn about it. Is that conversation more and more present within sort of educating the next wave of doctors? Yeah, I think it needs to be very present. I mean, people are, um, I'm certainly starting a course at U of T for ah. un undergraduates, uh, n not in medical education, but I'm also involved in medical education. Um, and again, that, that conversation needs to be very clear in terms of the, because the uh, you know, MDs, in terms of prescribing a medicine, medical cannabis, a lot of them are all about needing to see this data. Mm -hmm. They need, they, they want to have a comfort that there's, they're used to prescribing things that before they prescribe, they have a certain comfort with safety and efficacy data. And they're concerned, that's the way they've been trained and that's the way they will con probably continue to be trained. Um, and certain, you know, the, 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 there is a tension between this whole realm of marketing and advertising and also the realm of education because clearly with, with something like opioids, not that I'm c comparing the two in terms of the effects, but you know what we had was a, a very intense marketing campaign that, did, that, this, that, that um, made claims that actually the scientists all along knew were. So people, people have, you know, in the prescribing realm, Lots of people will have that in their mind. So in terms of training the next generation of medical students, I think cannabis, it, it's quite a challenge. And what I always say to people also is that it's, it's, a moving, it's a moving environment. It's changing all the time. So we can't design a course right now that will remain the same for the next 20 years because as the data emerges, we need to change what we're saying and how we talk about it. And we need to be ready to do that in a nimble way, I think. Nick Nanos from Nanos Research, thanks for joining us here today. Great to be here. Uh, so we're here at Canada 2020, Canadian Grown. You just gave a presentation about public sentiment around cannabis and several different facets. What are you finding today that may be different from the past? around cannabis and the way Canadians think about it. What's interesting is that people are both positive and intrigued. What do I mean by that? So, you know, we did, uh, in the survey that we did for the Business of Cannabis, we, what we realized was that, you know, we asked Canadians about how accepting or unaccepting they might be if, uh, if a cannabis enterprise came to their community and wanted to create jobs, uh, and also ask them what they thought about what the local government should be doing. And uh, what's quite clear from the research is that uh, the vast majority of Canadians are accepting of having jobs of the sector in their local communities. And also, they basically want uh, their local government to treat any type of cannabis job in the same way they would treat any other job and, uh, and that uh, it's, it's not really any different. And you know, I'd like to say about 10%, we're kind of naysayers, but you know, in my world, when I look at a lot of different industries, if only 10% or 20% of people don't like jobs in a particular thing, that's actually quite low. Yeah. Um, and uh, and they see, so they see that potential. Uh, they think that Canadians can be a, a world leader in this, which is kind of part of the intriguing part. The one gap is, when it comes to contribution to the Canadian economy in the future, there's a lot of people that are unsure. What does this mean? They want to learn more about it, right? How big will the cannabis industry be? Uh, how successful uh, might it be? So I think there's a, there's a bit of a role to play for, for people to, uh, to, to learn more about the industry and to kind of connect what I'll say, the, the, the hope and positiveness about the job creation and impact with kind of hard numbers. Lots of people were really, really engaged, I think, with the message that Canada or Canadians 
do believe that the cannabis sector, we can be a global leader. In the context of when we're recording this, the election is a, a few days from now. It was a very easy sell in 2015. It was a, a, a key differentiator of, I'm going to legalize recreational cannabis. That's what I'm going to do. A Trudeau government did. It's different now in this election cycle. It's not necessarily a ballot box question to say that, yes, it's legal, but this government and our public policy professionals, uh, we are going to help entrench this and really make this a global leader. Wondering as a pollster, how are you going to be watching this unfold over the next little bit, regardless of, you know, who takes government on October 21st? What's interesting about this election is, uh, you know, think of the amount of focus that there has been on the legalization of cannabis. Yeah, sorry, do you hear crickets? Yeah. <laughs> and it's because it's just everyone's on the same page. Yeah. So it's not uh, what we're going to do, it's how we are going to do it and what it means for the future. And I think that's that's going to be that's going to be kind of what people are going to be interested in. You know, for a lot of these public policy issues, uh, that's all people want to know is, what does this mean to, for me? What does this mean for me as a consumer? What does this mean for me as someone that might live in a community that might have a major employer in the cannabis sector? Uh, what does this mean for me uh, if I'm going out for dinner at my friend's place and, uh, you know, there's the appetizer, the entree, the cheese course, the dessert wine course, and then a cannabis course, right? And and so they think about what, and right now, Canadians are just starting to think about that, what does it mean to me? And, you know, in, in the research that we've done, it suggests that consumables is actually the big upside here, that uh, there are a lot of Canadians, and rightly so, and I think it's a fair position to say, have to say it's not my cup of tea to smoke anything, period, vape smoke, cannabis, all that kind of stuff, uh, but that they are more intrigued and open to consumables. Uh, so I think what we're, what we're having is a, a shift for, it's not really a debate on the legalization or commercialization. Now it's to how do we do this and how do we do a good job? And I think Canadians also know that we're among the first major democracies to do this. And you know that you don't have to be like an economic development expert to think, right. hey, we're kind of first in this space. If we can do a good job in Canada, that might be good for our industry in terms of us being a leader globally in this and could create more business opportunities uh, for, for the industry writ large. I have a bit of a methodological question for you. You do a lot of uh, a lot of work in the political space. Um, you did some great numbers on tracking the the, the federal campaign. Um, do you work with with uh, other industries and industry groups? Mostly. And well, yeah. So so I, I'm. Was there anything unique or specific or special about working about the cannabis space that differentiated it from working with, say, the energy sector or uh, the automotive sector or, or other industries that you have worked with? Well, people aren't usually intrigued and they don't usually wonder, they, you know, it's kind of like fantasy world. Right. So. Would I consume cannabis if it was, uh, it's kind of like Dr. Seuss, if it was in a pie? If it was <laughs> I will consume it on a boat. Bar. I will consume it with no, a goat. Right, no, but that's, it's, so, it's a little different than, than any right. other thing because, uh, uh, because, you know, let's face it, uh, people are consumers. They like to try new things. Uh, they might like those. They might not like those uh, new things. Uh, and they have to see what, what the right fit is. Uh, for them. So I find uh, doing research in this space that uh, people are engaged because they know that even if they do not 
if, if cannabis is not their cup of tea, so to speak, they know that their friends will probably be consuming cannabis, uh, their neighbors. They know that there'll be jobs in the cannabis industry. Uh, they know that it's going to be just part of our society. So they have an interest, even if they're uh, even if they're not hot on it. And for those for lo- for those that are uh, kind of open, it's going to it's like new. Th- it's a new thing to try. It's like waiting for the next iPhone, right? It's kind of like, okay, when's the next version of the newest iPhone? And what are going to be the new features in this iPhone? Well, I think, you know, the cannabis industry is going to be a bit like that, where there will be new things on the marketplace and people will be, you know, and cannabis companies are going to be saying, you know, in, uh, you know, in July 2020, we'll be releasing new this. And then there'll be like hype on, okay, these are new features. How popular are these features going to be? And people are kind of being engaged that way. And we're here with uh, Trina Fraser from Browser Seller Law, and you just finished up a panel discussion on the difficulties of retail over the past year. And to say that that was a um, sought-after panel discussion one year into legalization, I think is a bit of an understatement. Uh, what were your thoughts? How did the panel chat go? I I think it went really well, a really helpful conversation. I always like it when we have a mix of the industry plus the regulator represented on the panel. I think that makes for the best conversations. Yeah, we had Cal Bricker, the new president and CEO of the Ontario Cannabis Store, which has had its ups and downs, I think it's fair to say. Correct, absolutely. Both from the perspective of them being the exclusive online seller in this province and also the exclusive distributor. We've, and, and, you know, overseeing the AGCO's actual implementation of the licensing regime as well. I think the thing that's really fascinating to me about the retail side of this is that it's where the rubber meets the road for a lot of people with respect to legislation. It's There wasn't a cannabis store down the street you know, last year, and now there is. And so it, it occupies a tremendous amount of mind share, I think, for people of like, oh, this is what the legislation looks like. And we were just chatting with uh, Trevor Fencott, the CEO of Fire and Flower, and he mentioned that the, the, the good and the bad thing of all this is that we've got lots of different models and options to choose from because everyone's done something kind of different. And I know you've tracked this really, really closely. So a year in, what's working, what's not working? Do we have any definitive answers one way or the other? I don't think so. And it's also a question that requires you to define what is success and what is not. Are you looking at aggregate sales? Are you looking at per capita sales? Are you looking at usage rates by miners? Are you looking at displacement of the... There's a lot of different ways you can measure success with retail, right? So I think it's, first of all, how do we define success? And also, you know, I think we're a bit premature still to start making conclusions about whose model's working and who's not because it we, we don't have a full rollout of stores in every province and we don't have a full ro- rollout of product types yet. So I think really every model has to be given a fair shake by going a little further down the road in those aspects before we start declaring winners and losers. Oh, I will declare one loser. Please. W- w- Newfoundland, which I have Newfoundland. From, <laughs> from the outset because this... What do you this, have against Newfoundland? Uh, a fixed 8% commission to retailers. That's what I have against them, which okay. is a, just an impossible margin to make any money at and really um, skews the retail environment to just large operators who can essentially just absorb that, uh, use it as a just loss leader. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. It, 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 the, the, the small mom and pops can never survive in that environment and we're already starting to see evidence yeah. of that. I'm really 
interested in the solve on the black market displacement because if you talk to a lot of LPs and people working in the industry, they will immediately point to marketing restrictions. They will point to size of logos. Uh, there's a variety of things. And, and it's the first thing that they say when you put out that, oh, well, the, one of the biggest threats to this legislation is, is backslide into the black market. Is the answer just like we need to be able to market? It's certainly not the only answer. Right, right. Um, you know, you don't see the illicit market putting up billboards or sponsoring major sporting events, and yet they seem to still have been able to promote and sell their products quite effectively. So I think really we're going to see what the issues truly are once we do have a rollout of 2.0 products. Because right now, a lot of people that I talk to, and anytime I hear about someone who buys from you know their guy or online at whatever unlicensed store, I always ask, how come? And right now, the answer I most often get is that I can't buy this in the legal framework. I want a product that just isn't available. So when those products are available, then I'll be interested to see, are those people still buying from that source? or now have they switched to a legal source? If they haven't switched, then the question becomes, again, why? And it's going to have, is it price? Is it convenience? Is it quality of product? Is it consistency? Of, like, what is it? Is it a, just a lack of awareness, um, uh, a comfort and familiarity with a particular product? You know, so, so I, I, I will have to reserve judgment on that issue but what it is I don't it's certainly not just restricted to promotion Um, but I, I, I do think we're overly restrictive on promotion all right, we're here with the CEO of Fire and Flower, Trevor Fencott. Trevor, you, you just got off stage. Um, you delivered a, a keynote this morning. The framing was local to global, um, and I think that kind of fits with my interactions with yourself and your company. Fire Flower is, a, is an incredibly ambitious company. I'm, I'm really curious right off the bat, what does that framing mean to you? You work in the retail space, but you also have global aspirations. I think that for us, um, you know, we've always known the cannabis industry is a global uh, industry, and certainly with the uh, strategic investment from Alimentation Custard, with their you know 16,000 locations, 25 countries, and you know all over the world, um, that certainly accelerates our our global vision. And I think we can take what we're learning in Canada, and that's the stuff that we will export to different uh, different countries. Um, and it's become sort of clear to us that unless we take some sort of drastic policy um, accelerants or, or different directions, we're going to have to do that. And I think Canadian companies are going to have to do that. So for example, um, you know, one of the experiment, experiments we've had in, uh, in Canada so far is in Saskatchewan. Fire and Flower has our own distribution um, company, Open Fields. And again, every province did their own thing, but that was one particular experiment we, we liked. So we buy directly from licensed producers. We manage a supply chain. Um, nothing crazy has happened. Cats aren't living with dogs. Like, the sky hasn't fallen. We've supplied not only all of our seven stores, but we supply 25 of the independent retailers in the province. So, like, that's an example of something that's worked. Um, that may not 
be adopted across all provinces. We think that would be a shame, but it may not. Every province is different. But that is something that we we intend to export uh, when we go to different countries. So, you know, for example, if you look at the U.S. market, uh, you do have to manage your own supply chain. Uh, there are not sort of state, um, you know, certainly not in places like California, uh, which is a major market. There are not kind of state-run enterprises that are buying for everyone. They have different sort of uh, ways of looking at that. So I think we're taking what we're learning in Canada and trying to kind of amalgamate it into best practices and then export that to, to different countries. You touched on a, a tension, I think, that's been present over the, the past couple of days, which is the acknowledgement that a year ago when the legislation passed and we had a legalized recreational market that the sky didn't fall that it's it's been mostly a pretty smooth rollout but that's also clashing up against um a, a, I, th I think a growing frustration that we may not be moving fast enough. So how do you square those two thoughts in your head, which is that it's pretty good, not a disaster, and also we're missing opportunity here. How do those two things mesh for you? For us, they mesh in that like, we're going to go global. The, 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 the cat is out of the bag in the sense there is a global market for cannabis. It's a global industry and at different stages of maturity. I think Canada was one of the first to come online, but we think, I think we all know it's not going to be the last <laughs> to, 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 to do that and so the opportunity kind of as candidates to lose and our and our our view on it is look we would love to open more retail stores we would love to get you know uh, again back to Saskatchewan we we buy cheaper than any province any province because we have a direct business to business relationship like that's just private enterprise working and so um, you know for us if we are too slow I mean, we will go to other, and this is not just us. This is, and capital moves everywhere, so will business. So I think that that we what we might see is, look, if we don't move fast enough, um, companies will go to different markets, um, and that's not the end of the world. We will still be here in Canada, and we will participate in any way we're allowed to participate. I just think that what we'll we might see, uh, you know, look at some of our other cultural like cultural sectors, like um, you know, comedians have to go to the states to to become big, right? <laughs> you know, our bands. And, and that might be something where we see, well, actually, yeah, it's like producers, product companies, retailers have to go um, somewhere else to become uh, significant players. This morning, Nick Nanos presented uh, some numbers paired in partnership with the Business of Cannabis. As a CEO of, of, a, of a major LP and, and with hands in the retail space, I'm curious how you interpret um, one of his central findings, which is that there's generally favorable opinion uh, amongst Canadians of the idea that Canada can be a global leader, right? You've talked about what that means for you and your company, but I'm, I'm interested in what your interpretation of those numbers and, and how that may affect how you where you take your company. I think that everyone in Canada now has had some interaction with the cannabis industry, whether it's uh, someone they know is employed at a licensed producer or a retailer or even, you know, um, knows a professor at a university that's doing some research on it now. I, I think it's broad enough that everyone kind of knows someone who's either in it or knows, you know, it's, it's, so it's connected to us. Um, but I think the lack of clarity on kind of where we go next is that, you know, that was a great part of a slide with sort of this the future kind of we're interested and it looks good but we don't really know what it looks like so we have generally positive but what does that mean so uh, I interpret that as there's lots of different touch points people have, you know everyone knows someone who maybe had a medical issue that uh, access cannabis or uh, you know um, gotten a new job or migrated out of like uh, sectors that are downsizing in 
into this, like, you know, um, big pharma. There's a lot of sort of pharma reps that are you now repurposed it as, as medical reps at, at licensed producers. A lot of, uh, you know, beer, wine, spirits folks that are now in, in, in retail. So um, I think... You know, what it means to us is we just need to get some clarity around what are the priorities. Um, and look, if retail is not a priority, that's okay. There's other markets for that. That was my sort of my, my point. But um, I think until we have sort of a, a recognized agenda, which is we want to export IP. So I'll take it out of our thing and let's say it's about the, mapping the genome and let's sort of start to, to, to try to institutionalize some of this IP and export that. That's great, but there's no, there's no strategy for that yet. We, we haven't done a trade mission. <laughs> you know, we haven't sort of organized, here's the four things that we really like about it other than we did it. That was, you know, so I think that, that, that data is sort of like, we did it, everyone knows we did something <laughs> and they know it's touched them and they think it's probably not, as, not a bad thing because again, the world didn't stop, everyone still went to work and <laughs> it wasn't the apocalypse. But what's next, I think, is the big question. Thanks very much for listening to 2020 Live on the 2020 Network presented by Interact. 2020 Live is produced in-house at Canada 2020, Canada's leading independent progressive think tank. If you like what you heard, remember to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us a lot. And if you want to stay connected with Canada 2020 and see what events we have coming up, remember to subscribe to our mailing list at Canada2020.ca. Thanks very much for listening. 